This audio is from the second night of our Theology Night and was recorded on January 21st. Uh, this is the second of three in a series that we have called Hermeneutics. And this session, like the first, has been edited some from its original content in order to fit this format. So if you have any questions as you listen, uh, please let us know at info at stoneoakbible.com. All right, so we are on week two of a three-week, I don't know what you call it, lesson series, whatever you want to call it. Um, first night we went over what? What was our, our main theme, main topic, one word? Observation. observation okay. Uh, we were trying to answer a question with observation that was, what do I see? Correct. Okay. Then I gave you some homework. What was that homework? 30 observations. How did it go? Give me some feedback. What did you learn? Did you have any... How was it difficult for you? If it was difficult, raise your hand. Don't be ashamed. First time going through, it should be difficult. It's hard. Uh, how many of you were like thinking, man, I really wish like my ninth or 10th grade English professor or teacher was like right alongside me? Because that's usually like the first instance that I came upon was I really didn't understand English until I took Greek, which makes no sense. But I realized how much I had missed within the English language whenever I tried to learn a different language. It was so much harder. Um, what did you learn through this process of observation, though? Anything big that kind of came out of the text from you or for you? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I put you in the middle of a sentence. If you looked at Acts 1.8, it does not begin with a capital letter, which that could have been an observation. If it's not, feel free to write that one down now. But it doesn't begin with a capital letter. It begins with a lowercase letter. And it also begins with a conjunction of the word but. So Bob has realized, first of all, I'm already out of context and it's bugging him. And you can tell. But his observation is, this is hard to do without an overall context. Good. What else? Something that you learned from it, something that the text showed you through it? Simple observations. Excellent. Making some assumptions of the text. Uh, it's one of the reasons that we look at it out of context right now. By pulling it out of context, we look at it in a little bit of a different light. And whenever you're not just reading through it, like if you have a Bible reading plan, usually it's, okay, I'm going to read through this text, and we often read through that text, and we think, okay, so what? How does it work now? Whenever I put you on one single verse, and you have to constantly read it, and read it, and read it, and then slow down and read it word for word, possibly pick up a different translation and read it through that, it makes you think about that verse in a different light. And for some of us, it brings up a... I thought I knew this verse really well, but I realized there's tons of questions I have now regarding this verse. Excellent. Anybody else? Thing you learned? I just, I hadn't really thought about that you. Who is you? Yeah. Good. Who is the you in this case? Is the you the specific audience that it's talking to? Is the you an individual? Is the you a group? And does that still apply to me? That's a great question. What else? Connie, yeah. Excellent. With a both, typically with a both, how many would you expect to follow that? Two. With this both, we have, we have three things. And Bob has noticed we have two pairs. Okay. What are the pairs? How are they separated? How do they show that they're two pairs? Jerusalem. 
and all Judea and Samaria. Okay, depending on what version you're looking at, the publisher, I, I remember that word, the publisher could have inserted in some punctuation to help you even separate that. Depending on what version you look at, it could be Jerusalem, comma, and all Judea and Samaria together. Depending on your version. If you look at the ESV, I looked at the ESV and I was thrown off because I'm used to using whenever I do this, typically the NASB. And then the NASB, I'm pretty sure it was Jerusalem, comma, and then the separation of and all Judea and Samaria. If you're reading the ESV, the publisher chose to not insert that comma. Okay, an uninspired piece, once again, that the publisher chooses to make a point or not make a point with. Anybody else, something that you gained from this or something that kind of popped out from a relatively well-known scripture? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, excellent. So Casey picked up at the end of that remotest part of the earth. Okay? With that, it brings up an interpretation question. Is that remotest part of the known earth at that time? Or is that remotest part of the earth, meaning every bit of the earth? Did you notice earth, by the way? Anybody notice anything special about it? Capitalization. Typically, planet is capitalized. Dirt, as in that's the earth right there, is usually lowercase. So it could have possibly been an observation of earth is not capitalized. That's an easy one. Don't miss the easy observations. Okay. Uh, what's the most somebody got? I, Frank, you got 51. Is that correct? Anybody get over 51 observations? Bob, how many did you end up with, Bob? 80 some. Okay. Pity Bob right now because things are going to get rough for him here pretty soon. It's okay. All right. Uh, Mike, can I get you to come up here for a second, bud? We're going to take now our step from simple observation and we're going to then now transition to interpretation. This is one of those tough things to kind of get the understanding of what's the difference between observation and what's the difference between interpretation. I have in my hand a, a, a black device, okay? Mike, I want you to just make some observations about this. Take it, make some observations into the microphone if you would, sir. What is it? It is an iPod. Okay. Describe um, it to me. It is black on the front and it has a screen, it appears, has a screen. Has can I like do yeah, I have a knowledge yeah. of the iPod before yeah, or is go it for just it. Go for it. Um, I can see my reflection in the back of it. It's got a half-eaten or like a bite out of an apple. Um, it says 80 GB. Um, it says Merry Christmas, Craig, love Lenny. Okay, let's pause right there. <laughs> Read that inscription to me again. Merry Christmas, Craig, love, comma Lenny. Okay, can you make any more observations about that, that, that tiny statement that's engraved on the back? Any other observation piece? Who that, is Lenny? Okay, so you have a question now of who is Lenny. Um, I'm assuming Craig is you. Okay, assuming. He's making an assumption based upon what he reads on the back of the iPod that Craig would be me. Do you know who is speaking? I guess Lenny. Okay, and who is it spoken to? Craig. Okay. And it's for Christmas. Okay, so we're making the observation that it was from Lenny to Craig and it was given at Christmas. Mm -hmm. Okay. What's the odd word that you're feeling in there? Love. The tension of, of that word love in there. And that you have a wife named Wendy. Okay, and I have a wife named Wendy, yeah. Okay, so that's a problem in there. Thank you, Mike. Excellent. Okay, so 
So Mike has made some observations on just my iPod, okay? I was sitting at a coffee shop this morning trying to understand this and it just like hit me like a ton of bricks. I have my iPod and nobody's going to understand what that inscription means on the back. There's some interpretation that has to happen with this because the initial reading is, whoa, Merry Christmas, Craig, love, Lenny. The big question is, who in the world is Lenny? Let me give you some interpretation. Let me help you out here. Lenny is my wife, okay? My wife's name is Wendy. However, whenever her nieces were young, they couldn't say Wendy, so they called her Lenny. So it's a nickname that I gave to my wife whenever we were dating early on. And so I would always just call her Lenny, okay? It just kind of stuck. This iPod was given to me from my wife during Christmas. It was a Christmas gift, okay? However, let me give you some more interpretation. I'm going to go into the, the cultural aspect of this as well as the historical. We were not yet married. What's the important word on the back of this iPod? Love. Love. This was the first time that my wife ever used the word love referring to me. Okay? What is the word love? What kind of emotions and feelings does that involve? They're usually pretty big and pretty heavy. And the first time you say love, it's a, is it going to be reciprocated back, right? Do you remember in your relationship if you're married or, or even in your dating life, the first time that word love was ever mentioned? It was probably a scary moment. For my wife and I, this was the very first time. However, what does the love, comma, Lenny what does that mean? Any guesses why she chose to write Lenny instead of Wendy? I would guess because it's an intimate conversation. Okay, Bob guesses because it's an intimate conversation. Carol, you said the same thing, that it is my name for her. Okay. There it is. It takes off the seriousness of the word love. Because she wasn't sure if it was going to be reciprocated back, if she writes love, Wendy, it's for real and it's out there and it is obvious that it means L-O-V-E, love, okay? However, she didn't write that. She toned it down and inserts some humor to write love, Lenny. Once we got married, I brought this up to her. That's the only way that I know that's what she actually meant. And I even asked her, I said, how hard was it for you to spell the word love as you did? I said, I'm guessing you probably went through this a number of times. Do I want to write L-O-V-E or should I just write like L-U-V or could I just like put a heart in there? She said, yes. I thought about this for like a week and a half trying to determine whether I wanted to write the word love in there. And then she said, my mom said, why don't you use the word Lenny instead of the word Wendy? This required interpretation. Without it, we had no idea what it even stood for. We have no idea who this dude Lenny is and why he's giving me an iPod whenever I'm married to Wendy. Now, does it make sense? Absolutely. This iPod is, is something that I will hold on to forever because it is the first time that word love was used. And it was a significant gift for us in kind of our dating years. It has meaning for me. But the only way you understand that means if you know the cultural significance, and if you know the historical significance, and if you know the time that it was given, as well as it helps to know my wife and to know uh, the conversation that we had. So interpretation, we're trying to answer the question of what does it mean? 
What is the meaning of this? The more time that we spend in the observation stage with our 51 and our 80-something, the easier the stage of interpretation will be. The more time you spend observing the actual text, the easier it is for us now to go into the step of interpretation. Let me show you a picture. It's another, I want you to tell me what this is. What is this figure that I'm holding up in front of you? What is this? Somebody observe this for me. Connie, Connie, observe what I'm holding up on my iPad, please. It is an octagon. That's red. That is red. And it is shaped like a stop sign. OK, shaped like a stop sign. And Tell me about the background that it's on. It's, a, it's on white. It's on a white background. And it has all straight lines. All straight lines. Okay, it's not completely centered, which it's on my iPad. Does that surprise you? Remember the box rectangles I had you do last week? Shouldn't be a big surprise. Excellent. So I have a red octagon. That's just simply a picture on my iPad. Let me take it one step further now. What does that red iPod, or the red octagon, what does that mean? Internationally, it's stop. It's stop. Whenever I first put that up, did anybody recognize that instantly as a stop sign? Why? The back of a stop sign. Why did you instantly recognize that as a stop sign? The shape, the color, the observing of it is simply it's red and it's an octagon. The interpretation of it is what does it mean? It means come to a, a, a cease motion, okay? Slow down and cease motion. The application of that then is? Actually stop, okay? Do you understand the difference between observation and interpretation and took a step further even into application now? It's helpful whenever we use real life items that we are all familiar with to kind of get to that point. But it's important that we understand what interpretation really is. Uh, our goal in interpretation, you can see it on your sheet here on the worksheet, the very first per point underneath interpretation is to think God's thoughts after him. That's our goal. <clears throat> I, my voice just cracked. That was incredible. That's my goal uh, with interpretation is to think God's thoughts after him. One of the keys to interpretation is to read out of the text, not to read into the text. A reading out of the text is something called exegesis, and reading into the text is something called eisegesis. An exegesis looks at the text and says, what does the text say? Simply as that. Looking at the text trying to approach it without the preconceived notions or ideas that we have, and simply saying, what does the text say? In eisegesis, what that is, is you're going into the text with a preconceived notion already. You're, you can look at the text and try to make it match or make it say what you want to. One of those is dangerous. Which one do you think is dangerous? Eisegesis. Eisegesis is very dangerous. We take our preconceived notions and ideas and we read them into the text. In exegesis, ex out, we are looking at the text and having the text read us. What does the text actually say? Not what do I want it to say, not what is the easy way for it to say something, but what does the text actually say? In observation, we were building, observation was building our foundation and during interpretation, now we're putting all of our pieces together. In interpretation, if you did observation, most likely you came up with some questions. 
You should have questions based upon your observations. During interpretation, one of our goals is to answer some of those questions. Some of those questions are easily answered. Simply, look at it in context. What comes right before it? What comes right, right after it? Excuse me. That's an easy way that we can begin to answer some of the questions that arise within observation. We'll go over here in a second other ways that we can answer some of the questions that we come up with. So I'm a why type of guy. I like to ask why questions. Why do interpretation? What is the purpose of it? Well, we have four. First one, language barriers. There are barriers within uh, language. If you've ever taken a foreign language or you know a, another language, you can begin to see the barriers that occur within language. It's within our text as well. We're reading an English Bible. I would suppose everybody in here is reading an English Bible that has been translated. Because of that, there can possibly be some language barriers. As well, if you aren't familiar, Brad, I think you mentioned it last week, if you aren't familiar with the King James Bible, and that's the only Bible that you have at your house, there could possibly be some language barriers even within that. It's a language that is unfamiliar to you or words that are unfamiliar to you. Next one, cultural barriers. There's a difference within our current culture and the culture of the Bible. Great case in point, Job. Okay? We're going through the book of Job as a church right now. On Sunday, Justin mentioned these three friends are coming from areas okay, around the land of us. To us, that's not a big deal. We travel all the time. However, whenever Justin kind of brings it together, that one of the closest people, it's like he walked from Dallas to San Antonio. It gives you a much better understanding of what it is like culturally. Because we're in the mindset of, if I want to get someplace, I can get there. Not a big deal. I can hop on a plane, and I can be to Dallas in 45 minutes. Not the same culture, a different circumstances. There are literary barriers. Barriers within the way that the text is presented. Whenever we read poetry, we're reading poetry. Whenever we read a narrative, we're reading a narrative. There's a difference between them. As well as communication barriers. Have you played the game Telephone? The game Telephone? Yeah, there's communication barriers. I hear one thing and I say another thing and then it's said in another way. And by the end, it's not a little, no longer even what you had. There's a problem whenever we're reading the text is it is God communicating to us. A perfect God communicating to imperfect people. There's usually a problem. I sometimes, whenever I read the text, have this eisegesis approach where I look at the text and it tells me, hey, don't do that. And I completely like gloss over that section or you read faster or you just go to the next chapter. There's a communication barrier there. Important to know, <clears throat> I don't know all the answers. And let me give you a hint, nobody does. Because if they did, they would be God, okay? I sat underneath a number of very, very intelligent professors. To hear these very intelligent professors say those words, it's, oh, it's freeing that I don't know all of the answers to scripture. And that's okay. It's okay that I don't know all of the answers. Hazards to avoid. When doing interpretation, there are some things that we want to make sure that we don't do. That's why these are hazards. So the first one, misreading the text. Misreading the text. Uh, Psalm 37.4, if anybody have their Bible with them or your phone or your iPad, <laughs> or by memory, if you have Psalm 37.4, you got it down? 
Excellent. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. You know what? I really desire a brand new mega mansion. Therefore, I love God. I am delighting in God. Therefore, God is going to give me, because the text is true, and because God cannot lie, and because his word is perfect, because I love God, and because the desire of my heart is this brand new massive mega mansion, the text says I'm going to get it. That's a misreading of the text. Let me give you another example. John 14.6. Anybody got that one by heart or have a Bible? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Our culture has changed this one by saying there are many ways to God or many ways to Christ. It's a misreading of this text. And the last one, 1 Timothy 6.10. This is a fun one. I'll start you out and you'll probably get it. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Therefore, I need everybody to empty out your bank accounts Place all of your money right here. I'm going to take it from you because I don't want that to be a problem for you. I don't want this money to be an evil thing for you. Okay? Nobody's moving. Why? It's a misreading of the text. It's a problem there. I've taken the concept or the idea that I've wanted to insert into this text and I've read it that way. The problem is not the money. The love of money. Okay? So I have misread that text. Next one distorting the text distorting the text 2 Peter 3, 16 this is a great passage it's one that kind of gives you that sense of breath or that little bit of hope who's got it? close 2 Peter 316. There you go. There are some things in them, the scriptures, that are hard to understand, to which I think everybody in here would say, Amen. There are portions of scripture that are hard to understand. Now, here's the important part which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. That's a dangerous piece there. Next one, after distorting the text, we have misreading, distorting, next one, contradicting the text. Genesis 3, 1 through 4. Let me summarize it. It's in the garden. We have the serpent, and he's with Adam and Eve, and he begins with, did God really say? It's the first piece, if we remember last theology night, I pointed back to this, where the idea that the Bible is not the inspired word of God, that it cannot be relied upon, it's not a new concept. In fact, it goes all the way back to the beginning. We see the serpent in the garden asking God, did, or asking Adam and Eve, did God really say? And then he continues on, and he contradicts here. You will not surely die. There's a contradiction of the text within there. God has told them one thing. The serpent begins to ask a question to, to track their minds. Is that really what he said? Let me tell you what I'm going to say. You're not going to die. It'll be okay. 
It's a contradiction of the text. Next one, relativism. Relativism. Uh, if I could rename this one, I think it'd be postmodernism. It's, I have in your worksheet the resurrection that many people today uh, profess Christianity and look at the resurrection as not a real literal event, but they look at it as a figurative event that did not really occur. That's a big problem. They're looking at the relative science involved of today and saying that men cannot raise themselves from the dead. And I would agree. I said men cannot raise themselves from the dead. However, God can. There is a relativism which has been placed into a biblical story that has tried to relate it and make it um, palatable for today. The last one, overconfidence. An overconfidence within the scriptures. This is a dangerous one, um, and it's one that I saw frequently. It's the idea that I know the scriptures really well, and they can't really teach me much anymore. Therefore, I'm not going to approach them in this manner. I know them. I've interpreted them. I've sat in church for 85 billion years, and I have heard every scripture within the Bible proclaimed to me. I know it. I'm okay. There's a problem whenever you get to the point of overconfidence and saying God can no longer teach me anything from his revealed word. All right, so those are the hazards to avoid. Be careful of those. Um, another thing to kind of point out here, as we've gone through the hazards, God is not confused about what he has said, even if we are. I'll say it again. God is not confused about what he has said, even if we are. We have disagreements within Scripture of people interpreting verses and interpreting the Bible in different ways. That's why we can all stand on the Word of God, yet churches act and proclaim different things. It's because they have differences of interpretation. Let me say, though, because we, as finite creatures, misinterpret, that does not mean that God is confused on a subject. God's word is real and it is true whether we understand it or not. You have a question, comment? Imperfect. Absolutely. We are very imperfect creatures. <clears throat> All right, so five keys to interpretation. So looking at interpretation, here are five keys that we are going to walk through. Content, context, comparison, culture, and consultation. There are five of them. Con, con, com, culture, con. 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 What is it? Con, 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 culture, con. One more time. Con, con, com, culture, con. Excellent. Now that it's stuck in your head, you're going to sing it all night long. Hopefully you remember what it goes to. The first one, content. Content. What is the content? As we're doing interpretation, the content is the raw material with which you will interpret the text. As long as our observation was good, this step of content is easy. We need to ask the who, the what, the when, the where, and the why questions during interpretation. Many of those should have been answered, or at least we should have proposed the questions in the observation stage. The content of Acts 1-8 is 
Acts 1.8. It's simply the words that we are looking at. That is our content. Okay? Everybody with what the content is? What's the content of Matthew 28, 19, and 20? Matthew 28, 19, and 20. It's pretty easy. It's the actual literal words that we are looking at. It is the content. All right? After content comes a very important word, which many of you were very upset about whenever we did the first 30 observations. That's the word context. Context is the material both before as well as after. Sometimes with the content, for instance, Acts 1-8, very important to look at the before. Why? Because we're in the middle of a sentence. It's really hard to tell me what a sentence means if we begin right in the middle. As well as it's important to see what comes after. Many heresies, I would say like 98% of heresies, begin with scripture. And why they begin with scripture? Because of eisegesis, reading into the text what I wanted to say. As well as a lack of context. Context is much greater as well than simply verse before and verse after. There's an overall, overall biblical context as well, which gets very difficult because we don't have to just look at Acts 1-7 and Acts 1-9. We have to look at the entire chapter, the entire book, as well as the entire New Testament, as well as the entire Old and New Testament altogether. This is the ultimate context. If I told you, hey, we're going to do Acts 1-8, and I want you to tell me the context of it, it could take a long time. Why? Because it's not simply the context of Acts 1-8. It's the context of how does this fit within the entire story of Jesus, the entire story of the Bible. There's a lot of context involved with that. Context takes time. It's one of those things that continue to be in Scripture and learn more of context. But for our immediate context, it's simple to look right before and to look right after. For context, there's a number of things to look at. First, the literary context. The literary context uh, is the actual words both before and after the verse, paragraph, or the section. So where does it fall as, as far as the literature? What's before and what is after in our context? Historical context answers the question of when. The question of when, what was immediately going on before and after this time period? Let's think back to this. Think back to the iPod. What is the literary context? There's not one, okay? There's nothing before and there's nothing after. It is its own context. There's nothing before Merry Christmas, Craig, Love, Lenny. There's like the word iPod afterwards, but that doesn't really mean anything with our, our I almost said called it a verse, our, our little tiny words that we're looking at, Okay. So our literary context is it is its own context. Tell me about the historical context. What is the historical context of this? Okay. A- answer the question of when. It's a story of relationship. Christmas. Christmas, even before that. Okay. People give things at Christmas. We're going into the next one now, cultural context. Good, though. What else about the history of it is important? When we were dating, okay? The historical context is important for this because it's the first time that word love was said or written between my wife and I. The historical context shows that it wasn't post-marriage, but it's actually pre-marriage. 
Uh, we had been dating for, at this point, probably like a couple of years. I was very slow. I drug my feet. My wife hates it. But it was a couple years probably of dating at this point before this came out. That's the historical context of this iPod. Next one, the cultural context. The setting of the times. Connie, you mentioned it. The historical context of when was Christmas. The cultural context of when, though, what, what about Christmas? Is it important? We give things, okay? Gifts are exchanged typically during Christmas, which makes sense then why Merry Christmas, Craig. It was then, it, it becomes obvious then that this was a gift that was exchanged. It helps us know that based upon the cultural context of Christmas in the United States. It also is, it's an iPod classic, okay? It's an iPod classic. It's, it's old, okay? They don't make these anymore. This is, this is a relic now, but it still works, which is great. But if you know iPod generations, you know the time frame of this, and you can know that this is not a recent gift. Just looking at the, how beat up it is, it's not a recent gift, but it was given a while ago, okay? Uh, geographic context. What's the physical terrain? Where are we? And is this important to the story? Sometimes it absolutely is. Other times, geographical context doesn't really matter. This, anybody know the geographical context of this? Missouri, excellent. I can tell you exactly what it was. It was Waynesville, Missouri on my parents' couch. I was sitting below the window. I remember it well, okay? Does it matter? To you guys, not a bit. Doesn't even matter. Whether it was in Missouri or in Texas, that statement doesn't matter. So the geographical context of this iPod doesn't really matter in this case, which is okay. Sometimes within the text, our geographical context will matter. Other times, it doesn't make a difference where they're at. And we might not even know where they are. This one's important, theological context. How is the author understanding God? How does this fit in with overall theology? Book of Job, a great case in point. We've been through two weeks now of the book of Job. Their theological context is much different than ours. That's why Justin each week has said, this was Job, we have something different. Because of our theological context, our understanding of God, as well as the way that God has interacted with us, compared to the book of Job, we have Holy Spirit, we have God's revealed word, we have the perfect works of, work of Christ upon the cross. Because of that, our theological context is different than Job's theological context. Okay? Everybody with me on those? Excellent. <clears throat> Next one. Comparison. So did con, con, com, comparison. To compare scripture with other scriptures. Extremely important. Whenever we're looking at the overall corpus of scripture, there are very few times where a, a confusing passage cannot be made more clear by a clear passage. Uh, a, a quote here. You very rarely have to go outside of the Bible to explain anything in the Bible. That's important. Whenever we have a passage that might be a little foggy, or I might not be sure what this means, 
one of the great resources that we have, we'll get to it in a little bit here on consultation, is we have, if your Bible has those little tiny numbers next to it and little tiny letters, it's usually referring to a different, it's a reference Bible, it's usually referring to a different area within your Bible that something similar happened or it might help explain. Sometimes you look at those references and you think, I have no idea how they got from point A to point B, and this was no help at all. Other times, it's exactly what you need. It is, wow, this was unclear, and I'm not sure what the text is meaning here, but I can see that this text is very similar, and it is very clear to me. Okay? Any questions so far on interpretation? We've gone over some hazards. We've also gone over five keys. Con, con, con. Culture, con. Any questions? Okay. Last week, I gave you homework. Do you have it? Nice work. I'm not going to collect it. You're okay. Feel free to grade yourself. <clears throat> For those of you that exceeded and did 80-something, and did 50-something, 50 51. I'm sorry. Here's why. Wherever you're at, draw a line. Draw a big, fat line right underneath it. Doesn't matter if you made it to 12, if you made it to 80-something, if you made it to 51, if you made it to 30. How many of you did it exactly 30? You're like, I did 30 and I'm done. That was me as well. How many of you did over 30? Look at you overachievers. Well done. You guys shot yourself in the foot. Congratulations. Here's what I want. I'm giving you more homework. I want another 30. I want another 30 by next week. And instantly the reaction is, I'm done. I've exhausted everything. I've looked at this. I've spent hours over this. I have let it just steep. It's been like the crock pot going in the back of my mind for a week. And even today, I was done with this passage. I hope to never see it for at least another week. 30 more. There is more within this text. I promise you. Do 30 more. If you want to be an overachiever and do 80-something more or 51 more or however many more, feel free to. This time, though, I will let you use context. But only Acts chapter 1. Your context is only Acts chapter 1. However, you're not making observations over the entire chapter. You are only making observations over Acts chapter 1, verse 8. If the context of chapter 1 helps you to understand Acts chapter 1, verse 8, there you go. Okay? You should be able to tell me who is speaking. You should be able to tell me uh, who he's speaking to, which is very helpful. All right? 30 more by next week. You may use the context of Acts chapter 1. However, your observations are only over what it relates to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. So if the context helps you to interpret or to observe, excuse me, to observe Acts chapter 1, verse 8, excellent. But you're not making observations on anything except Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Any questions? Bob? Do we cook chapter 2 next week? Do we cook chapter 2? Can we go to chapter 2 next week? Yeah, maybe. I might let you. Okay? Any other questions from tonight? <laughs> yeah, we're going to take it from the book of Acts to I need you to observe all of the book of Acts and Luke. All right. Thank you guys for coming. 
We will be back next week as we finish everything up. We're going to finish up interpretation as well as we're going to begin application next week. If you have any questions, feel free to email me and I will be in contact with you. All right. Thanks, guys.